G'day and welcome to the What's Next podcast. I'm Dave Yates and today it's just me. Pete's away with a client and he couldn't get here for today's interview, so Holly and I got together and talked all things leadership, diversity, bias, change, innovation, ideas, and all the things that light me up when I get up in the morning. Holly Ransom is a globally renowned content curator, powerful speaker, and master interviewer. Named one of Australia's 100 most influential women, Holly shares the stage with people like the Dalai Lama, Barack Obama, Malcolm Gladwell, Richard Branson, and many more. Holly is famous for fighting complexity with curiosity, apathy with empowerment, and fear with fact, and it's very evident to see that in today's interview. Herself, she's an accomplished company director and the youngest director ever appointed to an Australian football club with Port Adelaide. She's also the CEO and founder of consulting firm Emergent. Holly has led real-world results with clients such as Procter & Gamble, Microsoft, Virgin, Cisco and KPMG. But in 2021, not only did Holly graduate as a Fulbright Scholar from Harvard Kennedy School, as a fellow, she also published a book, The Leading Edge. This one right here. And The Leading Edge, she talks about how people can harness their own potential to lead by asking better questions, thinking beyond biased answers, and building collective momentum for change. Holly, welcome. Thanks very much Thanks, for being Dave. part of this. My pleasure. Thanks today? for having me. Ah, no worries. Where do we find you today? Today I'm in Sydney. I've finally been allowed to travel. Having been uh, in Victoria, um, I was in the US when COVID hit and then moved back uh, when they closed campus. I was studying my master's and so moved back in March 2020 and basically, with rare exception, have been confined to Victoria since then with COVID rules. So it's it's very surreal being able to travel again. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me, um, uh, we're going to get into the book in a little bit, um, but just just give me give, give our listeners a bit of a, a taste for what it's like to launch a book in one of the world's most locked down cities. <laughs> it is it's strange. I mean, I because I started writing the book, like the book was a COVID project for me yep. in terms of yep. I, I think many of us. Uh, one of the things we could say about COVID, um, for better or for worse, actually, is it was forced stop and a lot of reflection and introspection. And so it did give me the opportunity to to write the book. I don't know if I would have had um, the, the clear air and the thinking time were it not for COVID in that regard. So because I'd written the book in COVID, I don't think I'd ever conceptualized a, a book tour or book launch that was outside of COVID circumstances, to be perfectly honest. But it was ironic that we had a brief reprieve from lockdown in Victoria and then we went back in to lockdown two days before the book came out. So it absolutely, you know, it made sense and I was very grateful that we hadn't invested in doing physical events or anything like that because we just had an assumption that oh, it was just too likely that something could mm. go wrong given the pattern of events in Victoria in particular. Sydney was in lockdown uh, at that time. So a lot of virtual, right? You know, a lot of doing virtual events, a lot of joining um, one of podcasts like this one, a lot of trying to meet people where they seek information um, mm. because people, you know, uh, people absolutely have been ordering online, but there hasn't just been the footprint of retail traffic and people wandering through stores or airports and seeing your book and going, oh, that looks like it could be interesting. I'll pick that yeah. up and have a go. Yeah. So um, that'll, that'll all be to come. Yeah, much more deliberate purchases. Yeah, I think so. People have to go, they have to know to seek it to begin with, you know what I mean? Like people, but I think that is one of the positives um, that a lot of people have been reading 
and, and listening, so the audiobook version even, more than they might normally. Uh, you know, a lot of people will say to me, oh, I love the book and I listened to it when I was doing my, my walks during lockdown and, and those sorts of restricted activities have kind of permitted sometimes a level of uh, that sort of activity that we maybe don't have when we're busy or when we're losing 60 minutes a day plus to commuting or all that sort of stuff. So that's nice as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, tell me, it, it's obviously thrust you into the new media scene quite a lot with podcasts and webinars and all that kind of stuff that seems to be the new era of events, particularly post-COVID. Um, have you learned anything being forced into that paradigm and not being able to do physical events in traditional type of launch? Is there anything new that you didn't know before you went into that kind of an event process? Um, well, I guess it's not just even with the book, probably it's with a lot of what I do and, and you're the same, Dave, like we, we convene and, and, and work with groups and facilitate really regularly. So it is, it's strange uh, doing that virtually. I think there's pros and cons. Like I will always be someone who loves being in the room. Uh, I love the energy of people. I uh, believe I'm a big believer in body language. I'm a big believer in uh, the space that you can create in a room and the energy you can set that is just that little bit harder to do online. That being said, I think one of the really great things that COVID and digital events opened up and, and, and I think hybrid in the future will continue to facilitate is access. There are so many people who it never would have been possible um, because by virtue of the cost constraints or the time constraints, you know, they might have sent two of their leadership team to a conference in Sydney, but they wouldn't have sent 20. Um, mm. But when it was virtual and people could watch from home, they went, hey, let's open this up to everyone. Let's give everyone access to this learning in this conversation. Same for, you know, access to talent. You know, I was very fortunate a couple of weeks ago to interview Michelle Obama as part of a program I was hosting. And, yep, you know, it's that. hard to get people like that to get on a plane and come out to Australia. But yeah. when they can join you from, you know, their home and, and can sit there for an hour and then be back to whatever else they were doing, it's a lot easier to open up access to those sorts of conversations and insights yeah. as well. So I think there's, there's benefits and, and probably that was one of the things I hadn't foreseen, just how much it would change. You know, there was a number of programs this year where typically I would have been working with a cohort that was, you know, a third to a fifth of the size of the one that was facilitating in hybrid because it was just so much more capable of being bigger when you went online. And so I think there's there's some beauty to that and I, I hope it's one of the reasons that we consider thinking about hybrid formats moving forward. You know, there's a there's a place for virtual, there's a place for in the room and there's a place for the mixed and I think now we've got more choices because really pre the pandemic, virtual was a very poor cousin if not just a unknown entity uh, to being in the room and I think now we have proven there's doing digital well and there's doing digital not well but doing digital well can be a really great experience. Absolutely. We had one example, Pete and I both facilitated a conference and this was one of those ones where they called us in at last minute because uh, they uh, they were working on a hybrid event. The hybrid event was feeling a little bit not amazing and they, they pulled us in and said, hey, can we can we rethink what we're up to here? And, um, and we pitched the idea of an unconference and ended up moving everything to online because the WA borders were, were, were completely shut. But this was a we're talking like like PhD level um, geoscience type conference, like wow. real intense engineer environment. And we managed to get them into a space with no fixed agenda, completely user-driven content and people being put on the spot to give 20-minute talks based on demand in the room and what are people are up That's to awesome. and the rest of it. And, and seeing the openness from traditionally conservative groups of people to be like, oh, let's give something a go is is 
really refreshing. Like I think the openness to try something new on digital two years ago was a bit like, oh my gosh, things can go really wrong. And now is like, well, yeah, but things can go really right and let's give it a go and roll. It's a great example too. And I love that. I'm so encouraged by that reflection from you that of, you know, when we have a habitual way of doing things. So we're less inclined to experiment with conferences because they're kind of a well-worn format for a lot of us. We know what to expect. We, we kind of want sometimes what we expect from them too. There's a, there's a comfort of sort of the rhythm of the way that we do an offsite or the way that we gather people together. And to your point, digital was sort of this unknown. There was no rule book. Maybe we hadn't as a company even ever engaged in that format before. And so that willingness to go, oh, well, we can only try and people are going to be more forgiving because they know it's our first time. Yes. Uh, and so that piece around expectation and the, the, the freedom that being able to lower our expectations or create that, you know, actual known intention of we're going to be experimental here. Um, I think that's a, a very important enabler of, of innovation. The other side of that as well is, is how much this has garnered inclusion. Like I, yeah. I, I, I remember um, we, we just had our third child. Um, no, congratulations. Thank you. Um, and he, uh, I had to do the at-home bit um, a couple of days ago and I had a client meeting and I just ended up being like, well, he'll have to sit on my lap. Mm-hmm. The inclusion to that is so acceptable and normal now, whereas two or three years ago that was, well, yeah, we can we can tolerate it. <laughs> no. It's true though, isn't it? We've all had a gateway into one another's lives. We've met pets, we've met family, we've met partners, we've met, um, you know, all manner of, of home life. And I think that is an interesting piece because, it, you know, it goes to that whole worn idea of, you know, work-life balance and this idea that they're two separate compartments of your life that you can somehow sit on a scale and, and juggle or evaluate their relative importance or, uh, you know, devotion in terms of time. And it kind of broke that, that fourth wall open a little bit and went, hey, here's me, you know, yeah. um, in whatever circumstances you found my household today, I'm empowered to parents that have bloody homeschooled for God knows oh. how long. Like parents in Victoria, I mean, my partner and I don't have kids yet, so I'm in awe of people who have managed to in the last two years, Victorian kids have not been in a full semester or full term of school since 2019. That's a oh, monumental that's effort alongside yeah. juggling everything else and caring responsibilities. People have been caring for people that have been unwell with COVID, you know, um, all of that. It, it's mm. remarkable. And I think it's good we've humanized things a little bit more because I think there's a lot of people who didn't think, to your point, Dave, that they could bring their whole self to work. Yes, yes. And then how we how we navigate that going forward as things start to increase in pace because we're coming out of lockdowns and things. Um, the two thing the two observations I've been making is is one, it's almost like the leaders, good leaders are doing a good job of knowing and connecting with their teams well. Mm-hmm. I worry about I worry about not not bad leaders, but I worry about ill equipped leaders who don't have the tools yet to reach into the worlds of their teams or don't have the permission from their teams to reach into those worlds and, and say, how are the kids? Because if they are doing something at home or if there is that work-life blend or they're deciding to do a different kind of a mix of work, that, that really does change the way they're engaging with, with their own work life and, and giving managers permission to a certain extent to actually reach into that world and, and find a way to work with it as well. Um, that, that, I think that's a real challenge going forward. And I think it's really important, you know, too, for a couple of reasons. You know, one is uh, that we don't have in a hybrid world, and I think, you know, every organisation I talk to is going to maintain some kind of hybrid format moving forward. You know, they're not going back to the office five days a week. Everyone I know that's polled the office has not had uh, anything higher than zero or 5% of people saying, I want to be there five days a week. So there's going to be some some hybrid. The thing that that challenges us on is we don't get um, – 
we don't get culture by default in the way that we might have once done in the sense of, oh, we're all in the space, we're all, you know, we're bumping into each other, there's that incidental, hey, how was your weekend, hey, how are the kids to your point, those sorts of conversations. It takes intention and discipline, you know, to be like, okay, have I talked to all of my team this week? Not just, hey, I need you to do this, but hey, how are you? What's going on? How can I support you? So that part is really important. The other thing is I think we've had a lot of conversation around mental health really with themes around loneliness and isolation over the course of the last two years. We're going to have a whole new wave of mental health conversation heading into 22 and, and we can see the leading indicators coming out of Europe and the US and kind of conversations there where um, not overstimulation, social anxiety, um, a real fear around still the the unknown of this, this virus lurking even if you're, you're double-vaxxed. And also family ramifications. Like we've got to remember there are a lot of kids who've had really disrupted um, journeys through this. And I've spoken to a number of leaders recently who've confided about challenges that their children are having returning to school. And, you know, informative years have spent a good chunk of them only socializing online and are really quite terrified and battling that. And so if we know that if you're, something's going on in your home life, your presenteeism at work is, is fundamentally impacted. So if we don't make sure we're still creating these spaces just because people are back at the office, doesn't mean there's still not all these challenges going on. So we've got to be really intentional about it. Yeah, exactly. And there, that, therein lies, I guess, the, um, the opportunity as well to reinvent what, what engagement and teams and offices and all the rest of it look like. Like, I, I guess yeah. in that, like, for example, I've had my own, um, my own interesting, um, what do you say, joust with, with overstimulation this year. It's, it's mm-hmm. been one of those ones that snuck up on me. I had no idea it was even a thing. And it's, I guess there's a part of the whole COVID piece as well. It's actually going, okay, this thing's a thing. I didn't know this was around before. And so actually going, I, um, I can't concentrate. I'm hyper-distracted. I can't sleep. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I'm feeling anxious. What the heck is going on? I've never had any of these symptoms before. And then going through the process and going, okay, Actually, it's dialing back the screen time, mm-hmm. getting away from the computer. It's sunlight, it's stillness, and it's getting back to that center and then going back to work and getting the work yeah. done and finding the balance. And, you know, we, we, I, always, I always used to talk about Richard Branson's quote around work-life blend, mm. work-life balance and finding a way to blend it and, and always aspiring to that. But I think the more we connect to, okay, well, what is work-life blend? We've actually got to bring the whole self to the blend, including yeah. that mental health the stimulation, the focus. Otherwise, we go, yeah, yeah, no, I'll take my phone with me and I'll I'll take my watch and it'll keep beeping me every time I get an email or whatever. Totally. And it just yeah. it, it becomes a, a, um, a self-fulfilling cycle that just speeds up and speeds up and speeds up until you can't actually turn the thing off. And that's it's, yeah. it's a really interesting one. I think we've all learned different lessons, whether it be hyperstimulation, whether it be social anxiety, whether it be whatever. In this process, that mental health conversation, I'm so glad, you know, we'd at least done some work in our society to, to soften the blow on mental health conversations so that we could at least start those conversations safely in certain environments. We've certainly got a long way to go, but it's been nice to be able to have those conversations and bring that up. I think yeah. I'm conscious within this podcast, we don't, we don't go past it, that we actually dig deep. Who knows who's listening? Um, Absolutely. Through those symptoms going, I don't know what this is. I don't have depression, but my goodness, I can't fix that my heart's racing and I don't know why mm. you know and I think so. that curiosity of you know trying to unpack where's it coming from because we we have we've uh there's a bunch of things that that makes me think about but you know one of the observations a lady that I feature in the book 
talking about mental health is Dawn O'Neill, who is former CEO of um, Lifeline and Beyond Blue. So, you know, two incredibly prominent mental health organizations and just a real, uh, someone who knows this space really deeply. And mm-hmm. one of her observations, the two observations that really struck me about talking with her early in the pandemic, you know, one was um, a lot of us haven't been really intentional about diversifying our support strategies for ourselves. So just as, you know, any anyone who invests would tell you to diversify your portfolio, yep. that idea of, and, and, and you know, an engineer would say, you better, you know, you're not going to build with a single support beam or this, this house is going to fall over. Yep. This idea of me needing to make sure you spread the load. Um, and, you know, she talks about this five five finger or hand strategy of well-being where it's like, okay, what am I doing from a mindfulness standpoint? What am I doing from a, you know, an energy standpoint, you know, whether that's mm-hmm. exercise and things like that, you know, being really intentional about support structures, you know, who am I helping? Helping and who's in who? Who am I having an open relationship with about how I'm feeling and going? But the other thing, I made the real point of, is that when COVID hit or when there's any significant disruption and change to our routine, it often challenges our ability to put our coping mechanisms to work in the way that we would like. So for a lot of us who had coping mechanisms that looked like I go to the gym, I catch up you know, for coffee with my friends on a Saturday, you know, all of that went. And so we had to be creative and adapt to doing things. And and I like your point that sort of we need to continually be curious about that because every time our circumstances change, you know, we do our best and then we've got to step back and go, how's that working? Let me check in with myself. Like, because it's yeah. really easy to get on a hamster wheel again in a different way yeah. and actually not realize, oh, that's probably just a different kind of not working right exactly. <laughs> to the one that I was doing before. Exactly. And I mean, the same thing I feel like, and I'd be interested in your perspective, particularly from a Melbourne point of view, um, uh, the thing that, that, that has appeared in the lexicon that I don't believe existed or at least didn't exist in, in my personal experience up until COVID is the idea of a social battery mm. and the fact that I can, you know, I've been in lockdown or I've been in social isolation or I've done my two weeks quarantine or whatever and I've gone out and had dinner and I got to 8.30 and I'm done mm-hmm. to go home. I've had enough. And it's a weird thing to hit the depletion of that social battery so early, but because you haven't been involved in these environments and having these conversations on a regular basis, it's you've almost got to reacclimate. It's like altitude sickness. A hundred percent. You know, it sounds silly to say it, but it, but it really and in some ways you can look at it and go, it's an incredible reflection of our body's adaptiveness in yeah. a lot of ways too. Because if we hadn't been able to adapt in a way that allowed us to be able to survive, the you know, for Melburnians, twenty months. Uh, mm. of basically completely restricted access to people in person, you know, we wouldn't have been able to make it through. So our body has adapted to going, okay, I'm not allowed to get stimulation yeah. and, and that from outside. I've got to find a way of being inspired, being um, in small spaces. A hundred percent. So we've adapted to a world that, that really required all of us to adapt to more introverted practices Mm. Out, you know, big crowds, noise again, you know, um, for our diary in terms of, you know, wanting to have long overdue catch ups and connections and conversations slotted in. And so, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, you know, for introverts, a lot of them will say to me, and my partner is one, you know, this time's been really good. You know, I, there's, there's elements that I really haven't missed of the way that we used to work. You know, I don't miss necessarily the, the big crowd gatherings, et cetera. And there's a need for everyone, you know, whether it's your natural disposition to be more uh, extroverted or not, to yeah. reacclimatize to certainly a rhythm that involves more, more interaction, social interaction than we have, we have been permitted to have for the bulk of the last two years. That's it. That's it. Um, okay, let's jump into the book. 
because I want to get a, get a, there's a few bit, few areas that stuck out to me, and I'd love to love to deep dive them with you if we can. Um, uh, I think we'll stay on the topic of energy. So so in in the first half of the book, so the book's divided into two parts, um, and and both parts are subchaptered mindset, method, and mastery. Is there anything you can talk about just briefly as to why you picked those three before we dive into some of the specifics? Yeah, so maybe at a high level first to your point around splitting it in, in half um, and yep. doing self first before others. I mean, I've been very fortunate in my time. I've spent about a decade and I've had the privilege of learning from some incredible leaders, uh, a number of whom are featured in the book, Barack Obama and Malcolm Gladwell and people like that. Mm-hmm. And people often say, what's the commonality amongst these incredible individuals? Can, can you see any pattern? Because that's one of the great value of having a data set, isn't it? You know, what can yes. we recognize as a pattern? And one of the things that really strikes you is that all of these individuals have a really clear sense of self. They know who they are and what they stand for, and they know the vision of what they're trying to bring to life in the world, you know? Uh, So that's one thing about them. And and so for me, there was this real important piece around, we've got to give people the tools to do that work on self first, that Mm -hmm. idea of you've got to crawl before you can work until we can lead ourselves, we can't lead others. So it was a real um, intentionality around doing that section first. And then mindset, method, and mastery were really about, you know, the, the breaking it down into those subcomponents. So we've got to get clear on the way that we think, the way that we communicate, um, vision, ideas, purpose, whether that's individually or collective, to be able to even get out of the starting box. If we don't know where we're going, we'll end up someplace different. So those mindset pieces, that ability to ready ourselves for the inevitability of setbacks, et cetera, the resilience tools we're going to need to navigate that and to take people on that journey, absolutely critical. Method was really important to me in a a particular passion area because I see a lot of people who say all the right things, but the conversion to implementation leaves a lot to be desired. And we know, like we work in in change for a living, Dave, you know, we know that that's where things fall apart. You Uh know, change initiatives have an extraordinarily bad hit rate. We're not great at method. Uh, And so the implementation piece uh, is probably – you know, an area that I think we need to turn more attention to in conversations around leadership. Uh, again, whether it's individual or collective, getting those habits right. What are those habits mm. that serve us? What are those habits that help us produce? And then mastery for me was really about this idea of, you know, none of this can be static. None of, like we are operating in a world that is constantly changing around us. So what are the ideas that are going to help us maintain sitting at the edge. So if you think about, and I, I share some stories of them in the book, you know, an example being the New Zealand All Blacks, you know, yes. the most winning sporting team of all time, right? They don't maintain their edge by keeping doing the same thing next year or next season as they did this year. You know, they've got everyone in the world looking at them going, how, what, this and that and the other, and, and they're performing different squad, different dynamics, you name it. Um, so for me, mastery, so to speak, yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. It was those tools around reimagination, around sustainability, renewal, and those things that can help maintain that capability for us to be really at the cutting, leading edge uh, of our, our field of endeavor, or the way that we're looking after ourselves and showing up, whatever way you want to um, kind of define that. Yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. Um, I want to jump into under method in in part one. You talk about mm-hmm. energy managing energy and I think we've been touching a lot on that already in this discussion so I want to dive in there um I want to share a story with you because you won't be privy to this so so one of the events that we did do together um I had a CEO approach me um we, we'd had a, we'd had a pretty reasonable relationship and he pulled me aside um and and said to me I thought I was um I thought I'd done well in life and then I read read uh, Holly's bio I feel like a bit of an underachiever 
Um, did that so actually I wanna, happen? I wanna, it did actually happen. Um, so, so <laughs> I want to start there and that. say, Holly, where do you get your energy? And and I, and I mean that actually quite genuinely. Like where in in the ten years of studying leadership and driving the career that you have, what drives you? Like what actually goes? No, that's the thing that I draw my energy from. And when I'm feeling low, I go back there. Look, it's a great question, and it's something that. As, as clear as I am on some of the core things, you know, part of the, the story I tell in the book is that I've also got it wrong. Like this is stuff that, you, you know, the passion for me for energy comes from getting it so colossally wrong and having to rebuild from the ground up when I was diagnosed with depression. But I think the, my grandma jokes, uh, and she's a very prominent uh, figure in the book. I love it to pieces, my grandma Dorothy. Um, she's always joked that I was born in perpetual motion. Uh, so there was this sort of energy that that has been there. And I don't know what it is, but I, but I do, do feel, um, and it's one of the reasons I started my, my Love Mondays newsletter recently, uh, yeah. because I just feel I'm acutely aware and I don't know where this comes from in, in my lived experience, aside from having lost a few friends in a relatively young age that, you know, no one's entitled mm. to tomorrow. We never know what's going to happen next. And so we've got to make our time count in however yeah. we choose to define that. And is so that, there is, is that Gary V, the Gary V motivator, you know, there's three words, you're going to die. And yeah. It's, it's almost like, oh my gosh, that's not a very motivating statement until you stop and think about it. And then it's like, yeah. no, actually, no, that, that makes sense. There's only so many rotations around the sun. What are we going to do with ourselves? Totally. And so I think that's always been my driving force is I, I want to make a difference um, mm. and I don't believe we have all that much time to do that. Mm. And then I think from a more day-to-day reality, so I think it's important that you've got some kind of anchor to, to purpose mm. in that and this idea as well that you're living in line with that. You really feel there's an energy that comes with every day feeling like you are participating in things or moving the ball on things that are in connection with that idea of this is the sort of market I want to make and I can see how this is contributing. And then I think there's more pragmatic things. Like I I tell the story of, you know, part of challenge for me when I I got depression was sort of looking around and going, okay, how did I end up here? And how Mm. do I change my life in a way that makes sure I'm never here again? Um, And going through that process, you know, it was really to me that I was giving over energy to people and things that weren't returning that energy to me or that didn't have my best interests at heart and and part of that depletion um, and also that reality check that comes with who's there to support you in moments where you're really challenging was a a major recalibrator. And so now for me, I've developed a real curiosity around energy. I would have said previously in my early 20s, I was someone that just pushed through um, you know, kind of got stuff done, you know, more hours in the day, more I could get done, great. Now I'm now I know that doesn't work. Yeah. You hit a wall with that. There's this yeah. really important piece around a couple of things. I think one is knowing how you learn and trying to make sure that you're in learning environments instead of continuing to fuel you in that regard, whether you're someone that learns kinesthetically like I am, where you've got to be out doing and engaging and interacting. That's mm-hmm. that's part of what allows me to be at my best, or whether it's being stimulated by sitting at the free of great people you're reading about or listening to podcasts with or whatever it might might be, you know, knowing that is really, really critical. I think the second thing is knowing what recharge and nourishment looks like for you. So what needs to be in your day and week? And as I write about in the book, this is probably the biggest reset in my life is learning to manage energy, not time, and being really intentional around, okay, like an example for me is, is exercise. It's my mindfulness. It's my sanity. Exercise every day to be at my best for everything else I'm doing. And so that needs to go in my diary. And the third thing I'd say that I've become really intentional about is 
life's too short to work on projects that aren't purpose aligned and with people that I don't love working with. And so I try to be really mindful of who I'm in collaboration with, whether that's sitting around a board table, whether it's that my, that's my business partners, uh, whether that's the clients I work with. I, I want to work with people who, um, you know, are, are values aligned, who are upbeat and ideas oriented and who are doers. I get energized by that. So I think they're some of the, the big changes for me that have helped move the, the dial on energy and a part of where day in, uh, like day in, day out, mm. I kind of both get my anchor energy from, but then continue to kind of fill the tank every day. Yeah. I think I, I cannot recommend enough the, the move from, from hours to energy and managing, managing. It's huge, isn't it? Now. It just changes. And, and again, it can, for me, <clears throat> 20, 2016, I hit a, hit a, a fatigue episode in the same way. And it's, it's only when you run into a depletion moment that you go, okay, this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. More hours doesn't mean doesn't mean more doing. Um, I've got to change the way I look at it. And like you said, being able to deploy, I can work for hours on something that lights me up, and and something that doesn't. You know, I've got to really manage where I start and where I finish, and how I actually engage with that work. And I think, like you said, finding particularly if you are the kind of person who is a mover and shaker in your career, whether you have a job within an organisation or whether you're sort of a freelancer or something like that, finding the work that lights you up and chasing that, you know. Even early, you know, at the cost of your own pocket to a certain extent, finding the networks and the people who will engage you for the reasons you want to be engaged, that's a snowball over time. That will that will pay dividends later on. And I think being able to, to be known for that's really, really important as well. Um you mentioned you, you, you mentioned purpose. Um and so I want to go there. But the, the question I've got for you is why the word anchor? I'm I'm a complete fan of it and totally behind it. I'm just interested. Like why do we anchor to purpose? Why not something else? For me, I think, and again, I guess everyone's got their own their own word and their way of phrasing it. I guess the reason I use anchor is two things. One, uh, I, the word gives me a sense of groundedness, and so this idea that it all starts there, you know, that that as kind of a, a key choice criteria. For example, it's you know everything before it even gets out of the blocks, and I'm evaluating: have I got time, and have I got this, and have I got that? It's got to be. It's got to start from you know, is it purpose aligned? So there's a there's something I like about the grounded nature of that word, what that word conveys to me. Maybe not everyone feels that way about it. The second thing for me is I use it in part for the discipline. Uh, and one of the things that bears out in the research uh, around purpose is that we're pretty good now, a decade on from uh, Simon Sinek kind of launching Start With Why and really kicking off this global business conversation around purpose. Like intellectually, we kind of get it. Like most of us, uh, have had the experience of working in a culture, uh, whether it was a sporting team we played in, whether it was, you know, a, a company we're working with now, whether it's a side hustle or a community group, of being a part of something where we feel really purpose aligned. Mm. And some of us, in fact, probably all of us had had an experience where we feel pretty purposeless, you know, mm. or we feel like we're, we're making up numbers or involved in something that really doesn't light us up. There's a really stark contrast behind that. And so even at a kind of individual personal level, we go, yeah, that makes sense. Like I, I know that I am better, I thrive better when I'm purpose aligned. Mm. The gap is that we're still not very good at doing it. So we can kind of see all these reports where, you know, 89% of CEOs say, hey, purpose is critical to customer experience and employee value proposition and shareholder returns and this and that and the other. But that same 89%, well, only 46% of us think we do it well. Like, And so there's this piece for anchoring for me around um, the idea of not just how do you do this once every five years when you set a strategic vision or, 
you know, uh, when you're gathering together in an offsite and then the rest of the time it sits on the About Us page of the website or in a drawer somewhere. But this notion of how do we anchor to it in every activity? So, okay, we're, we're launching our, um, our new quarter of activity. How are we talking about purpose and explaining our activities relative to purpose? Yeah. Um, okay, we're making a new hire. How are we explaining to that new hire how they're a part of our purpose and the contribution they're going to make to achieving our goals? Yeah. For me, there's this missed part in purpose that if it's the single greatest tool that we have in our communication toolkit to mm. get engagement, which mm. all the research says it is, it it's is. the part yeah. that turns on the limbic component of our brain, that's yeah. absolutely critical. We can't get motivation without the limbic brain. Mm. can't get behavior change without the limbic brain. Yep. So we need yep. that part turned on, and yet we're not utilizing it anywhere near often enough no. to be able to get its full effect. So for me, that's why the word anchor too. It's this idea of how do we try to bring to life, how will you anchor to purpose? Mm. How are you going to bring in new communication strategies, new new aids around the, the virtual or, you know, physical office space, um, different right. communication approaches where actually every time you're going into a Monday morning start of week conversation, you're going, you know, uh, let's let's share a purpose story. Let's have someone talk about, you know, a cool experience that happened last week with a customer, stakeholder, whatever, yeah. where we did something really great that was aligned with our purpose. So we're starting from there mm. and then all the rest of the conversation happens with the benefit of that focus and context. Absolutely. And I've even seen that happen in a laddered environment too. So you can actually ladder down from that purpose and say, okay, this team, we've set up this team, we're going to give this team a budget and they're going to do a project or this particular department exists for and, and they've done the work to actually define the purpose this team exists to fulfill the purpose of the organization. Because it might, I be love that that particular, point. it might be that particular team does only a specific part of the job of the purpose, but for them to know why they exist within the system, I mean, it goes back to some of the things you talk about in part two around systems thinking and being a part of the system, actually knowing that you're a part of a system and that you've got a role to play, but then owning your own purpose inside of that system can be incredibly powerful. And it's such a good shout, you know, and it was top of mind for me. I was talking to a mentor only last week who's just finished a PhD in leadership and I was saying, can you give me kind of the, the takeouts of your executive summary, so to speak, yeah. of sort of everything you've learned? And one of his comments was um, whether this, this piece around cascading kind of purpose and mm-hmm. you could call it responsibility and you could call it contribution because I think there's, there's two ways you can, you can take it. This idea of these are my responsibilities relative to our responsibilities and our collective purpose, or this is my contribution to our collective purpose. And uh, his observation was how incredibly um, poor we are if we sat people in a room and gave everyone a piece of paper and asked them to write that out. At firstly, having the same definition of purpose often, like what are, why are we getting out of bed? Why are we here every day or five days a week or whatever it might be? And then the individual part and the ability to contribute in. And we know there's a, there's a motivational hook towards, you know, personal actualization that comes from being able to say, Hey, I'm out of here. Hey, I'm contributing to something that's bigger than the bottom line because we know that there's a need to move beyond that when we talk about purpose. Um, that's massive. And, and so we're not tapping into that enough effectively if we're not cascading that down so teams and individuals can see, oh, that's how what I'm doing scales back up to our overarching um, reason right. for being. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that makes such a difference. And, and I've certainly seen it firsthand, the introduction of that, even just that rubric to measure, okay, this is what I'm doing because this is why we're doing it change the way people even just approach a problem to solve it. I, I, I constantly think about it. If you think about disruption or change as a, as a journey from A to B, quite often if there's no anchor, 
to anchor that journey, it just becomes a wandering journey and you end up mm. in the desert for 40 years, so to speak. Whereas <laughs> if you've got an anchor, you're actually moving from A to B against something that's a bit of a, um, a solid foundation to a certain extent. Yep. So, yeah. A lot of the rooms I've been in around innovation or disruption or change have been, let's start with why and not why are we changing, but why do we exist so that we mm. can change in the right direction and, and we don't leave the important things behind. No, that's great. I'm thinking about particularly moving from self to others now and some of the work you do in, in part two. Um, the, the two areas that stood out for me at the start were both the conversation you had around diversity but also the conversation you had around looking risk in the eye. Mm-hmm. And, and I think probably both of them are, um, <laughs> to a certain extent, take a long, hard look at yourself. Right? Like, <laughs> um, let's be honest with ourselves so mm. that we can take that objectivity into a group of people and say, right, this is the real problem, but this is the issues we've got to solve, or these are all the perspectives I should be engaging with and these, and this is where we might have gaps that I need to go and find new perspectives as well. I wonder whether or not you might have something to share about that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's spot on and, you know, there's that I think are really important that we – kind of unpack and think about our responsibility to the first is you know um diversity one of the things that strikes me there's two things that strikes me about that conversation that i hope is sort of we explore to some level in the book one is that we for all the the conversation we've had about it it's amazing that we we kind of forget the individual agency we all have in diversity in the sense of like it always amazes me we sort of bemoan the state of company leadership teams and boards and, and we should, don't get me wrong, they are not as diverse as they need to look. We've made some ground, we've not made anywhere near enough. That diversity conversation hasn't been as multidimensional as we need it to be. But I often say to people, like I want people to think about their own personal sounding boards. So ultimately all organisations and teams are is a, is a composition of individuals. Mm. And so what we're doing is carrying forward our own biases, comforts, choices into a collective decision-making context. So if we haven't been really intentional as an individual of going, have I got uh, gender diversity in the people that I turn to for advice? Have I got some generational diversity? Have I got cultural diversity? Mm -hmm. Um, Unsurprisingly, we're not going to think to catch that bias when we do that collectively, when we convene a meeting and and determine who's on the meeting invite or when we think about solving problems and strategy. Um, And that's inherently problematic because we know Mm. we're just hearing from people like us, we're absolutely missing uh, critical voices where we're not getting blind spots caught before they cause us trouble and before we're too far gone to be able to really course correct. So the thing I always say to people is start from thinking about your own network um, and specifically, you know, the old adage, you are the five people you spend the most time around or show me your your, um, kind of inner circle and I'll, I'll show you you. Uh, Think about whether you can diversify your five and whose perspective you could benefit from the addition to. Mm. Um, And again, it actually, there's some vulnerability in that. A lot of people say to me sometimes, I I work with a lot of groups of of CEOs, yeah, but how? I don't know any Gen Zs. I don't know any, you know, uh, I'm not that comfortable necessarily knowing how to navigate conversation with someone from a different cultural background. Mm. That's exactly why we need to start. Yeah, exactly. If right. we can't do that individually, it's completely unsurprising that we're not doing it collectively because if we don't have a comfort of leaning into that as if we're going to set up our work environment so that that's our regularly occur- a regular occurrence, right? Yeah, exactly right. I, um, I mentioned this in a podcast we had um, uh, a few months ago. We, uh, I remember sitting in a room with a bunch of people who were working on 
um, on community engagement and the whole purpose of the community engagement was um, an admirable position to say, let's make sure that the decisions we make get people on the right page and bring people along the journey. Mm -hmm. However, the conversation was being had by a group of white people in a room planning on how they would get their end game delivered. And so I said, as admirable as this whole conversation might be, it's actually colonial in its nature because we're trying to arrive with the solution and deploy it on a group of people. It's, it's wrong from the get-go because the, the, the bias you enter into it, is, um, it has your own biases within it that you don't even see. Totally. That, that's a journey and a process for people to even wake up to that, that, that kind of an environment and that kind of um, navigation. I had a conversation um, not, too, not, too, not too long ago um, with a CEO of a, of a, a multinational NGO. Um, she was talking about it as cultural intelligence. Mm-hmm. As the next step, we, we're probably going to get her on the podcast, the next step of um, emotional intelligence. Yeah. So emo- emotional intelligence is fantastic, but it's one-dimensional inside of one culture. Mm-hmm. And so if we want to be really emotionally intelligent, we have to be culturally intelligent, have the emotional intelligence for the diversity of cultures we're engaging with. Love that conversation. It, and I can't wait to listen to it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's yeah. so spot on though, isn't it? I mean, we, we've both worked, you know, in a number of different um, countries and a number of different communities. And it, it's yeah. so true. You know, the idea that uh, emotional cues and body language and behavior triggers um, the same set of responses or is reflective of the same set of emotions in those different comments is completely naive. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the story you make me think of, Dave, is one I share in the book about working in Kenya where, yeah. um, you know, I was working on a microfinance project and we were teaching and working with this incredible group of 22 women who were earning about 75 Aussie cents a, a day, backbreaking manual labor type work and mm-hmm. we're trying to feed anywhere from three to 11 kids and, and this work came from an Australian charity sort of who were doing great great work with the children. We're sending them home to the same home environment every night. We, we don't really know how to break these women that are leading these households free of the poverty cycle. Can you come in and help us? And so we were we were teaching in a sea container on one side of the slum and we'd been in with a chief that morning and so we were walking a different direction to get to the, the, the classroom, so to speak, with these women. And we stumbled on what looked like a brand new well, which was really weird because the the women had always told us it was like about an 1,800-metre walk um, to get to the well, and this was sort of 400 metres from the sea container, so it was like quite close, like right in the heart of the slum. And I said through our interpreter, "Uh, is that a well? I just assumed I I was wrong. It must be something else. And, And the answer came back, yes, it is. I said, well, is the well broken? And the answer came back, no, it's not. And I should say that this was built by an organization that every one of your listeners will know with yep. about $25,000 worth of aid money. Yep. And uh, they then asked, so why aren't we drinking from the well? You know, it makes sense, 400 meters away versus 1,800 meters, very different reality. And the interpreter came back, well, it's built on ancient battlegrounds and there's bad spirits in the ground and we can't drink the bad spirits or we'll, we'll get them in us and we'll die. Now, if you'd given me a million guesses, I wouldn't have guessed that that was why we weren't drinking the water in the well, right? But more importantly, neither of the organization that spent $25,000 in the name of good intentions, you know, trying to serve the community. And and all it would have taken, you know, to your point around making sure engaging the people that we are seeking to serve um, in co-design and collaboration and not assuming that we know what's and how to best serve them. It's always the thing I come back to when I think we risk the idea of imposing solutions or imposing this idea of we know better yeah. on any other group. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Um, I think 
in that, and, and I guess built into that conversation, a, a way out of it is, is another area you focus on the book. Um, what's the better question? And I guess um, building what you call critical curiosity, but I, I guess more, more, moreover, what Pete and I have found in, in having these conversations with leaders from across the world and investigating leadership and its engagement with the future of work is probably one of the most central ingredients in good leadership going forward is, is openness, is curiosity, mm-hmm. is asking questions and asking good questions and trying things on. Um, and when you don't understand something, typically like the cultural intelligence conversation we just had, um, is, is instead of saying, well, I don't understand it, is saying, why don't I understand it? What am I missing? What have I not, what shoes have I not walked in yet? Yeah, I mean, what, what, are the, what are some of the lessons you've learned in that space working with leaders for the last 10 years? Yeah, I love that um, comment around what am I missing? I think that's such a great question. Well, who am I missing? You know, it's one of the stories I tell in that chapter actually is, um, you know, an absolute idol of mine, Genevieve Bell, um, a cultural anthropologist and sort of one of the people that was on the ground of Intel sort of helping build that organization in Silicon Valley um, during its formative years. She she leads the 3A Institute at ANU and she's just this incredibly curious and forensically curious mind. And You know, she tells the story about, you know, the misconception around AI, um, Mm. that it was, you know, a recent technology and it was actually coined in 1956 and basically we've been on a journey ever since then with it and that we need to understand, we can better understand uh, things like AI and phenomenon in our current world if we can interrogate the history. Basically, AI was originated from wanting to create a machine that, um, you know, could could put some fear into the superpower that was the communist USSR at the time. You sort of understand that 60 years on, we're still building on a thing that was imagined at the height of the Cold War for a very particular purpose. Yes. And one of the comments she makes is sort of, you know, being going back in history doesn't actually tell you what the answer is because the world is mm. completely different, but it does help you generate the questions you should ask. Mm. So to your point, who's missing from that room? Well, we didn't have women and ethnic minorities in that conversation in 1956. Um, Or how would they have thought about cultural data and ecological data in the context of that conversation? Cultural intelligence, just like you talked about there. We we can probably guess that that was part of the conversation. Mm. So, you know, for me, it's it's really looking back at history. It doesn't actually give us the answers, but it gives us the questions. Um, and that importance of having a questioning disposition, I, I agree with you that I think it's one of the most profound changes from leadership in the industrial age to leadership here and now. You know, we had a model of leadership and a model of success that was built in that industrial age where typically, you know, had these giant conglomerates and people worked in one organisation often for the entire and time in service sort of equated to rank. You know, you sort of became a possibility to get the CEO role by the time you were 30 years, 40 years into the organisation. So there was this idea that there was an accumulation of knowledge around the way the business worked, et cetera, and the more knowledge you accumulated, the more positioned you were to lead. Now, no, that's completely flipped on its head in the world right now. Like we don't know. We are dealing with VUCA, right? Volatility, Mm. uncertainty, ambiguity, um, complexity all the time. We are having to reinvent with dynamism um, over and over. The last 24 months being an extraordinary example of that. Um, We don't know. You can't know because we are entering into unknowns at a pace like we never have before. And so that need to be able to go actually – it's not about answers now. It's about quality of questions and then the journey that we go on to piece together the answer in the context of the, the, the questions we're asking. That's what's critical. And that, that's, a, that's a huge change in mindset and in method. And, that, and that's, that's where things like I, I, I 
recalling even a conversation I had this morning with a, with a partner at a pretty large firm here in Australia. And she was saying, you know, we, we're, we're doing really well. You know, we're like profits are up as a partner, dividends are up, like everyone's, everyone's making bank, everyone's in a good place. Um, this new CEO has come on and has made a serious difference and it sucks. I don't like it. It's not a nice place to work. It's, yep. you know, it, it, like the, the check's fantastic. Thanks very much. But um, I keep looking out the window. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a really interesting one to go. And I think, you know, in a lot, in a lot of ways, it's, it's part of what I really enjoyed about your book is, is that self and others mm. kind of concept and actually going, yeah, there's, there's a lot more to, to leading at the edge, particularly in a VUCA world that is inclusive and, and that is curious and that is um, thinking about the humans and people in the process and not just driving those results. Um, and and to something we've kind of talked around through a lot of our conversation but maybe not explicitly too, that involves a lot of vulnerability. Oh, you know, that involves for all of us mm-hmm. being a beginner, mm-hmm. uh, being open, being prepared to acknowledge not only do we have blind spots, we actively need to seek them out and then solve for them, yep. whether that's, you know, in things we do in our own world or it's certainly in concert with others, that, that piece around diversifying who you surround yourself with. So that that piece around, you know, that this vulnerability narrative that we're seeing emerge more, like whether people like that term or not, that idea of mm. putting yourself outside your comfort zone. Mm. Um, and so part of the edge that you need to stand on being very much the edge of your comfort zone into your courage zone with this mm. intentionality around what makes me feel uncomfortable about this. Okay. If I'm uncomfortable about not having the answers, maybe completely aside from my working world, I need to go throw myself into something that I have absolutely no clue how to do. Pick up a new hobby that is just so out of my world, whether you're learning how to dance, learning another language, whatever it might be that makes you almost physically uncomfortable. Because in doing that, I'm going to start proving to myself that it's okay not to know. And week on in adaptability to a certain extent. Yeah. It is, it is yeah. absolutely this idea of learning agility and proving yeah. to ourselves in a context that feels less critical, you know, as in it's not necessarily going to affect my paycheck next week, etc. that actually I can step into something I don't know and I can accumulate knowledge and I can start yep. to feel more capable. And actually this isn't that scary. And then we can translate that kind of uh, experience into other aspects of our life. But I encourage people start somewhere that you feel less kind of protective over, less mm. Uh, like you've got to really safeguard it because there's colossal consequences if it goes wrong. Yeah. Start somewhere that's, the you know, impact. yeah, I think yeah. it's better to kind of cultivate in, in those areas. It's a bit like how we de-risk a, a startup, right? Like make it first handmade, start small. Yep. You know, we know these great stories of transformation projects that have gone wrong and burnt $100 million overnight because mm. they were developed in isolation and then not let out and until far too late in the piece. What's that? And then deployed on the people. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think that that's really important. Yeah, Holly, we're running out of time, um, so I do want to want to bring us to a close. Um, What what is next for the book and and for the leading edge for you? So I think one of the things that was revealed for me through the the process of writing it is this this passion I have for helping more people cross the implementation chasm. So I think a lot of us can resonate with good ideas, purpose being one that we've uh, we've talked about in this conversation, but the idea of actually putting it to work, seeing the benefit of it in our lives, mm. bringing it to life. There's an acknowledgement for me that part of why I wanted to write the book wasn't just that some of the content I felt was in the leadership library didn't feel uh, match fit for 2021 and the challenges of a, of a VUCA world, but also that the way we were teaching it didn't feel like it was designed to help us learn in this moment. You know, I, I feel a lot of learning in this regard is behind a paywall, 
a network wall or a time wall yeah. um, where if you don't have the, the $20,000 to go off and do a two-week intensive in some other part of the world, then you can't access it. Or if you're not working for the company that happens to decide to host the conference where you get access to the skills, you, you don't learn this you don't stuff. get it. Yeah. And so I want to crack that open and really democratize access to leadership development, make it more fit for the world we're in right now. So I've, I've taken the book, working with a, a great group um, of developers to to gamify the, the book and actually awesome. turn it into a challenge where this idea of 15 minutes, bite-sized learning and application every day to build new leadership capability. So I'm really excited. We ran a pilot in September with 100 leaders. Um, we're actually, we're, we're taking all feedback on developing our, our own app to go again, big public challenge kicking off. We'll take registrations as of December 1, but kicking off February 1. And I'm really excited to test that learning model at scale and to invite everyone to come on that journey of, you know, better me, better us, better world. Yeah, absolutely. And I know gamification is something we've talked about together in the past. We're so very I passionate about that, it. Yeah. That, that kind of, yeah, the, the relentless feedback as well. I'm really interested to see just as a social experiment, how well that is engaged with and, 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 and what leaders do with that environment. I think that's going to be fantastic. Um, as we close, uh, I want to ask you, if you could wrap up what you do now for listeners who are new to you into three words, what do you think they would be? How would you give the Holy Ransom sort of Cliff Notes version in, in, in three <laughs> words or three ideas? Uh, what would I say? Curation. Mm -hmm. Teaching. Actually, mm -hmm. that's a lot of work I do in leadership and development because I think there's there's a lot of strategy, there's a lot of developing kind of challenging mm. existing thinking, there's a lot of developing new structures for learning, so they'd probably be my three. Yeah, awesome. Very good. And if we were to finish this conversation with one action for our listeners to go away and think about, we've talked about the leading edge, we've talked about mindset, method, mastery, we've talked about energy and purpose and curiosity, um, what, what, what would be... Uh, yeah, an angle or a, or a or an action that you would say, go and practice this. If there's one thing you can take away from this conversation, go do that. Give it a go. I would say, given how dominant it was in our conversation, we'll pick up on that anchoring purpose piece. And I just encourage people to take some time, even think about the environment you choose to do it in. So, if you haven't been listening to this podcast out in nature, you might choose to take yourself somewhere that you find really inspiring or really um, quite for yourself to be able to think into. And just take out a little, you know, A5 piece of paper, doesn't need to be any bigger, and yep. take on that challenge of writing your purpose down. It is not an easy task. I think that's one of the reasons we, we nod and agree and go, yes, it's important to be purpose-driven, but the reality of actually how many of us can say it in a sentence is really challenging. So yeah. I encourage people to, to spend that time. And then when you've written it, and it might take a few goes, that's, that's totally fine. This is arguably some of the most important work you can be doing. So it will deliver an ROI for you, even if it takes a few, you know, five-minute, 10-minute goes over, over the course of a, a little bit of time. Yep. Once you've written it, put it somewhere you see it every day. You know, whether you take a screenshot of it and it's on the back of your phone, whether it's somewhere that's at your workstation, whether it's in your car, if you've got to commute to the office every day and it's on the, the fold down kind of mirror that's in front of you in the driver's seat, whatever you put it somewhere that is go to it regularly and check in with yourself and go, am I living it? Um, am I doing things that are aligned to it? Uh, that, that will help it come to life for you in a whole new way. Awesome. Holly, thank you so much for being a part of this today. Really, really appreciate it. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thanks, Dave. So great to chat. Absolutely. Cheers. That's the end of today's episode. Thanks for listening. What's Next is brought to you by The Next. We are workplace futurists and transformation facilitators. You can reach us on the web at www 
thenextnxt.com.au. Please ensure you subscribe to our channel to ensure you don't miss our up-and-coming episodes.